So we are in Isaiah, and last week we finished chapter 10. And if you'll remember, he was talking about the disposition of Assyria. And, of course, you all remember that Assyria is the one that sanded off and destroyed the northern kingdom and comes to literally the gates of Jerusalem and is turned back by God. And that's as far as they go. So at the end of chapter 10, he talks about the progress that Assyria is going to make coming south, and they come right down to Jerusalem, and then in 1033, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one, which is to say that Assyria is going to be destroyed, which they are. And so that's sort of the end of that. So now in chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, now we have talked in several instances about a stump. He talks about it in Isaiah 6:13. And then here in 11, he also talks about a stump in regard to Damascus and Ephraim, but that's not the same thing. What he's talking about is the stump of the nation Israel, which is to say he is going to cut down the tree of Israel, but there's going to be a stump that remains. And that stump then is what is going to bear fruit, as we're talking in 11, which obviously indicates that there is going to be a period during which Israel will be off in exile, which of course we know there was, and then will be brought back, and out of that stump will come forth the Messiah. So we should have behind me Isaiah 11:2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This sevenfold spirit, if you will, is a menorah, obviously. The grammar of this, at least in translation, is the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then the other six are descriptions of what the spirit of the Lord is. I have divided those left and right. So if we start with the spirit of the Lord as being the center of our menorah, then you have wisdom and understanding are the first two lamps out from the Spirit of the Lord. Then counsel and might are the next two out. And then knowledge and fear of the Lord are the final ones out. Now, the thing that's nice about laying it out this way is you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as I just described it, starting in the center with the Spirit of the Lord and working out or you can start with people and work in. Much like the tabernacle, when God describes the tabernacle and gives the plans, he starts with the Ark of the Covenant, which is him, his heart, the place where he is, and he works out to Israel. When Israel builds it, they start outside and work their way in. They put the tent up first and, and so forth. So. If you look at it from our perspective, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, right? 
you start with the fear of the Lord, and then as you work your way in, you get to the Spirit of God. Whereas, as I say, if you're God or the Messiah, same being, start with the Spirit of the Lord, which is His Spirit, and work your way out to us. It, it works both ways. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. What on earth does that mean? What other basis does he have for judging besides what he sees and what he hears? says he won't judge by the sight of his eyes, and he won't judge by but what his ears hear. What other information could he have that will allow him to judge righteously other than the evidence of his eyes and ears? What that's saying is that in Christian theology, the Messiah is God. I'm a Trinitarian. I'm firmly Trinitarian. And I believe that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one being. So the fact that the Messiah will judge not by what he sees or what he hears, but will judge righteously without eyes and without ears tells me that he's looking upon the heart, which he is qualified to do and nobody else is. In addition to which, it also tells me that the evidence of our eyes and our ears lie to us, but he will not be fooled by that. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. If you go back to Genesis 1, it was the voice of God that created everything. So the idea that with his voice he can also strike the earth, if you will, is perfectly understandable. And we know, for example, from Revelation that one of the things that's going to happen is this particular incarnation of the earth is going to be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So the idea of him striking the earth with the rod of his mouth is perfectly consistent with other parts of prophecy. The way he gave humanity life was by breathing into the clay, then with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So just as he gives life with his breath, he can take it as well. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And righteousness and faithfulness are two different things, obviously. You can tell they're spelled differently. Righteousness is doing what is right, what is lawful. Faithfulness is doing what you say you will do. So the fact that he is righteous is obviously very important, but to us also the, the idea that he's faithful is important because that is what enables us to trust in him. And then starting in verse 6, we get a description of what I believe is the new heaven and the new earth, not the millennial kingdom. Let's read it and then we'll talk about it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now what I said before I read verses 6 through 9 there is I believe that that's the new heaven and new earth, not the millennial kingdom. During the millennium, Satan is going to stir up the nations, and the nations are going to come against Israel at the end of the thousand-year reign. So that doesn't describe this situation of perfect peace that's described in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, because there's still going to be nations who are going to be able to be tempted by Satan and are going to be induced to take a run at Israel and the Messiah at that point. So that's why I I think this is a new heaven and the new earth thing, not a millennial kingdom thing. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, I am suggesting to you is new heaven and new earth, as opposed to a millennial kingdom, because what we see from other places in prophecy is that He's going to reign for a thousand years, but it isn't going to change people's hearts. They're still going to be rebellious. In that day, the Lord shall extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. When did he extend his hand the first time? The first time that the Lord extended his hand was during his first advent on earth. When Yeshua came, the first thing he said was, repent. The kingdom of the Lord is at hand. So there was an offer there. His hand is stretched out. If Israel had accepted that offer, which the Lord knows through Isaiah is not going to happen, So it says, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel and gather dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Notice Israel and Judah. The jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Now, obviously, you all have read the Torah a time or two, and you know that there is a rivalry between Ephraim and Judah. They're the two large tribes. They're the two tribes that have got the blessing. Judah has got the blessing of leadership. Ephraim has got the blessing of Abraham. Ephraim thinks that they ought to be in charge. Judah thinks they ought to be in charge. And so there's always been a rivalry, if you will, between Ephraim and Judah, just as there was a rivalry between Jacob and Esau. And that rivalry led to a split between the northern and southern kingdom. And, of course, Ephraim then goes off into exile. But this is all the reuniting of the nation of Israel. Verse 14. 
But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead his people across in sandals. So when Ephraim and Judah are reunited, they will become a formidable military power and will reestablish the kingdom of David. And the kingdom of David, by the way, did extend all the way up to the river, Euphrates. And the idea of striking the river into seven channels means it's going to be so shallow they're going to be able to walk across it in their sandals. Sort of what the metaphor is there. The tongue of the sea of Egypt is different than the river. Verse 15, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. In the Bible, the river is always the Euphrates. So when God tells them that the land he's giving them extends from the brook of the Nile to the river, he's talking about the Euphrates. Verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came from the land of Egypt. The deal here prophetically is when Assyria takes out the northern kingdom, they are going to go north across the river and be dispersed into some place. That was the policy of the Assyrian Empire, is when they conquered somebody, they uprooted them, replaced the population with somebody else, which is where we get the Samaritans. And the idea was as they destroy the link of a people to its land, the people will become more tractable and less likely to rebel. So the northern kingdom was then taken by the Assyrians and moved north of the river. They were scattered up in the area of the Caucasus or uh, Caspian Sea or up in Black Sea, up in that region. Don't know precisely where, but up into that region. When they come back, what God is saying is, I will make the river so shallow that they can walk back the way they left. And obviously he then likens it to when he split the Red Sea to bring them out of Egypt. Who are the Philistines? Palestinian and Philistine are basically the same thing. Palestinian is modern, Philistine is old. Now, there are a couple of thoughts as to who the Philistines were. We had the Canaanites, who were the people that were in the land as far back as Abraham. So when Abraham was in the land, you had Canaanites there and a bunch of otherites. When Israel came back and conquered the land, you had Philistines. They were a military people. They had the coastlands. They had chariots. The coastlands were flat and so forth, which means they were good chariot country, as opposed to the Israelites who had the central mountain region, which is infantry country. So the Philistines were a military people, organized, and the speculation is that they were 
the remnant after the breakup of Troy, after the Trojan War. But then the idea of today, them being the Palestinians, that certainly works for me. This is talking about when Ephraim and Judah are back together now. It means that the northern kingdom has been returned from exile. Israel and Judah are reunited. And at that point, the two of them will turn on the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and all those people. So now we're in chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So in that day, the day when Ephraim and Judah are reunited, and Ephraim and Judah being reunited, then flush the Philistines out of Israel and reestablish the kingdom of David, That's what's being described up in chapter 11, is the reestablishment of the kingdom of David. And Ephraim and Judah will say in that day, when they are reestablishing the kingdom of David, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And of course, what we're talking about there is the regathering of exiled and scattered Israel. So it is perfectly normal for Israel to say, you were angry with me, which is to say you sent me into exile, but now you have regathered me and your anger is turned away that you might comfort me. And then verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So this is a song of praise after Israel has been reunited by God and as they are either in the process or have completed the process of reestablishing the territory of the Davidic kingdom. Yeshua means salvation. So if you pick it up in verse 2, Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua. And with joy you will draw water from the wells of Yeshua, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Now, chapter 13. When Isaiah writes this prophecy, Babylon is not yet a problem. The city of Babylon exists. There are two incarnations of the Babylonian Empire. There's the old Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi, You've heard of the law of Hammurabi and so forth. Then that empire sort of fell and disintegrated. 
I don't know whether they were conquered by the Akkadians or they were the Akkadians. I don't remember which. I, the, the Akkadians were over in that area, and I'm not sure exactly what the time order of migration of peoples was. I just don't remember off the top of my head. So the old Babylonian Empire, at this point, I believe, does not exist. And certainly they are not a military threat to Israel. Assyria is the military threat to Israel at this point. In the future, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar will be a military threat to Judah. But that, as I said, is something like 120, 125 years future to Isaiah. So what Isaiah is writing about here, I believe, is an in times thing, much like the whore of Babylon in Revelation. Because as I say, as, he, as he's writing this, Babylon isn't on anybody's radar screen. So 13, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill rise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated one and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. Not sure who we're talking about here. I'm not sure whether we're talking about the army of Babylon, which in the future God will indeed raise up and will indeed use to chasten and send Judah into exile. That's possibility one. And then possibility two is we're talking about the judgment of Babylon itself. So it may be God's consecrated ones who will go after Babylon. Read on. Verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Obviously, we're talking about an apocalyptic battle where the nations are gathered. Verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. And this is obviously talking about end times, as God is dealing with the nations of the earth. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This sounds like Revelation stuff to me. Verse 12. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir, which is to say there are going to be so many people dead that man, people, are going to be a rarity. Verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble 
and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Heavens trembling and the earth shaken out of its place. And that sounds very much like Revelation. Verse 14. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. The Lord is doing the ravish, the stabbing. I don't know whether he is using Israel as an instrument, but the people who are fleeing are the wicked of the earth. 17. Now, here we're going to shift. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Well, if those of you who remember your history know that the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, was destroyed by the Medes. So this now is talking about the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. What we have read before sounds very much like end time stuff. So what I'm suggesting is you may have two time frames going on here. Because as I say, historically, the Medes and the Persians did in fact destroy Babylon. That's the whole thing in the book of Daniel with Belshazzar's feast. The Medes and the Persians destroyed Babylon at that time. So verse 17 again. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold, which is to say they cannot be bribed. Their bowls will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. That has not actually happened. In Revelation, let's go look at that. The Medes are a people who are not Babylonian. They were allied with the Persians. And if you remember from Desert Storm, you have Iraq. And Iraq is the land through which the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flow. To the east of Iraq is Iran. That's Persia. Iran is Persia. North of there are where the Kurds are, and up in that region is where the Medes were. So the Persians and the Medes came together to take out Babylon. Then the Persians overshadowed and sort of absorbed the Medes, and the Persians became the dominant empire. The Medes sort of faded. So if you go to Revelation 18, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. 
Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, and so forth. So God is taking out Babylon. It doesn't say how he does it here in Revelation, but it looks very thorough. So what we would say today, a missile strike or something like that. And certainly if the Persians, Iran, gets nuclear weapons, that's entirely possible. Back to Isaiah. Let's finish up the chapter. So I'm going to pick it back up at verse 17 and whip through to the end of the chapter. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures like ostriches who dwell there, and the wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. That sounds very much like Revelation 18, verses 2 through 4. I am not a biblical literalist in the way, for example, Chuck Missler might have been. I think the Bible is hyperbolic. It's from the Middle East, and there are a lot of arm-waving and hyperbole. But Babylon was conquered. It was not destroyed because Daniel continued to be in the government of the Medes and Persians in that area. So I don't know that it ever has been destroyed as described here. Certainly not destroyed as described in Revelation. But it did go back to the sand And I know Saddam Hussein was attempting to rebuild it as sort of a museum city to the glory of his ancestors kind of thing. But there's nothing there now as far as I know. I mean, there is something there now, but it hasn't been a city in a long time.